Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Keith Larson. Keith, uh, a friend, a good, close friend, although a recent friend. It's wonderful to see you, and I'm excited to be chatting. My top-of-the-line question to you is, what are the things that are preoccupying you, dynamizing you, interesting you, worrying you? right now? Well, there's many things that fall into all of those categories. I think one thing that has preoccupied me since uh, since we first met last year is just why science communication has been such a failure to mobilize, you know, kind of evidence-based decision-making in our society that's making a meaningful difference as it relates to environmental and climate change. And so that has taken me down this kind of rabbit hole of trying to understand not the motivations of policymakers or the public per se, but the motivation of the people who've been doing the science for the better part of the last hundred plus years. And I think that's been really fascinating to think about the role of science fiction, for example, in shaping the uh, ideas that, uh, say, mid 20th century scientists had in terms of whether they should be concerned about their discoveries. You know, clearly climate change was real, adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere was potentially troubling, but they weren't raising any red flags despite what they said. And I wonder, could that be because they read Asimov? And could that because be because they, for example, you know, were basically getting to do their science on the back of all that technology, that kit that was left over after the Second World War that allowed scientists to explore and probe our oceans and our ice sheets and our planet in new ways that basically might have shaped maybe a technotopian idea in their head that technology will simply save us from ourselves. And I think there's good evidence to support that. So that's one thing. Well, that's a pretty big thing. You mentioned Isaac Asimov, who, of course, was a science fiction writer of and and scientists who wrote over a hundred books of different kinds, but perhaps the most famous is iRobot. And yes. obviously much of what goes on in robotics derives from science fiction. And similarly, of course, satellites were first thought of by Arthur C. Clarke, a science fiction writer, amongst other things, yes. with his bevy of young followers in Sri Lanka. And there's no doubt there's a strong connection between these things. And I think what you're alluding to is what David Nye, the historian of technology uh, in the United States, called the technological sublime. And the idea that uh, there is something so overpowering and yet also appealing about new technologies that they can get in the way of thinking rationally. And Robert J. Oppenheimer, when he was giving evidence uh, in order to try to keep his Atomic Energy Commission entry status called the technically sweet when he was explaining how many how it could be that so many leftist atomic physicists were prepared to suspend their political beliefs in the interest yes. of the Manhattan Project because they wanted to see whether these toys that the U.S. military had suddenly given them would actually work. Exactly. Exactly. I think that, I mean, that's so fascinating. And I think that um, that there was this real, I mean, whether it be Arthur C. Clarke, whether it be Asimov, I mean, they 
they couldn't help but be inspired by the moment in time where they were. I mean, the idea that, you know, the, you know, the, the atomic age, you know, the ability to see underwater with radar, you know, the way to, uh, uh, to with sonar, I should say, to see up, you know, across, you know, the, the, the landscape across the seascape or the landscape or the airscape at night when it's dark or in storms with radar. I mean, how could that not inspire them to come up with these ideas, whether it be about robotics or satellites, you know, those kind of things. These were things that, you know, kind of were logical connections to, you know, what was happening. And of course, it's a positive feedback, I would guess, you know, that that the scientists that were creating these technologies were also reading these short stories, which were kind of the, in the short kind of novels that were written at the time, uh, you know, while they were at work, you know, while they were trying to, you know, solve big problems. This would have been their escapism. I mean, at least that's a, a reasonable hypothesis because they didn't have Netflix. <laughs> it's hard to believe, Keith, but there was a time when you and I didn't have Netflix. Well, I think that is the curious thing that I find challenging with my children is that, think about this. When, you know, when we were young, if we were watching a show, we were largely watching it, say, on primetime. So take a TV show that people in the United States would be familiar with, like MASH, that was a, you know, a serial show that showed up one day per week in the evening. You know, if you missed an episode, you had to wait for reruns to come out. And sometimes reruns would take years. But when, when I'm preparing dinner and my kids have finished their homework and they're sitting there watching something on Netflix, I'll say, no, it's time to come dinner, turn it off. They, they can't imagine why I'm demanding that they divorce themselves from this, this digital box that despite the fact that right after dinner, they could literally go turn it back on and start where they left off. So I'm not, not have missed anything. They yeah. have, they've missed nothing. There, there's no, you know, there's, there's nothing at stake. I mean, what happens if a show, you miss an episode when we were kids and then the show gets canceled and maybe reruns don't get picked up in theory, you know, you will never see that and again. You'll never know what happened to character Z or Y. Exactly. Now, <laughs> exactly. Keith, what a tragedy. To, to give people a wee bit of context, so you're an evolutionary ecologist and you're a science communicator. And I'm speaking to you, I'm in Madrid, but you're in northern, 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 northern Sweden. Yeah, I'm in Umeå, Sweden. Oh, you're in Umeå, right. Yeah. Next week I'll be in Abisko, which is even more northern. And Abisko is where you run a big centre. Could you tell us a bit about the centre's work? Well, in in 2013, I moved to Abisko to be the director of the Climate Impacts Research Centre. And so that is basically a centre, not in a physical sense, but in the sense of a group of researchers that work in a, in a physical place year after year, primarily looking at the impacts of climate change. Now, when we talk about the impacts of climate change for the non-scientists in the room, they think, oh, so they're trying to understand how climate change affects people. And no, that's not true. We're interested in how climate change affects ecosystem processes and then and how that might relate to climate change in the future. So for example, we have added a massive amount of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, and that increases the uh, heat trapping capacity of our atmosphere, which warms our planet. 
in the high latitudes in a place like Abisko in the Arctic, we have permafrost, which is permanently frozen soil. That permanently frozen soil contains a ton, a lot of organic carbon. And as long as it stays frozen, it's kind of like coal. If you don't burn it, the coal stays underground. So as long as that permafrost stays frozen, the carbon isn't mobilized. But as we warm our planet, the Arctic warms, the permafrost thaws, then you get this increase in organisms, those things that you don't see, the microbes, you know, the fungi, the bacteria, all those things. What do they do in the soil? Well, their job in the soil is to basically decompose things. Mm-hmm. And organic material is what they decompose. And since soil is, you know, partly organic carbon, they break that carbon down. And what do, what happens? Some of that carbon winds up in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or methane in the atmosphere, increasing the amount. So then a big question could be that as we warm the planet, do we create these self-reinforcing feedbacks so that even if we were to stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow, have we put so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? And because it takes a very long time, it takes biologic and geologic processes to remove it. Could we create a feedback that essentially is the permafrost keeps thawing, which puts more carbon in the atmosphere, which causes more warming, which causes more permafrost to thaw, et cetera, et cetera, which means that it's possible that the climate will continue to warm for hundreds, thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of years, despite when we stop burning fossil fuels. And that's a really interesting question. And of course, that's just one question that we can answer out of many different ecosystem processes that exist in the Arctic. I mean, lakes store carbon in the sediment at the bottom of those lakes. Oceans do the same thing. You know, so there's many different parts of the Arctic. You know, the when the Arctic has been a cold region, it's primarily covered with snow and ice for most of the year, which means that when the sun's energy hits that snow or ice, it reflects back up into the atmosphere. And so you get this thing called the albedo effect. So as the planet warms, you get less snow and ice, and then it means that the ground in the water absorbs more heat than it would have if it was white. So this is the kind of research that's taking place in a place like Abisko, but across the Arctic. And so it's not my research, it's the research of a group of people who work there from Umi University. And then of course, in Abisko, there's a research station which is run by uh, uh, the Swedish Polar Research Secretariat. And so researchers from all over the world come there. And that means that essentially, I manage a research program that answers those kind of questions. So that was a long answer to your question. No, that's exactly what I was hoping to get. And it might also be, Jermaine, if you could explain to folks about the Arctic Council, about the nation states that are involved in the attempts to understand the Arctic, govern the Arctic, etc. Because both poles, north and south, have complex geopolitical as well as scientific arrangements, don't they? That's correct. First of all, let's not forget that when we talk about um, when we talk about kind of the poles, when we talk about the Arctic and the Antarctic, the Antarctic, in some sense, is a physical, tangible place because there's this place called Antarctica. Um, although the Antarctic Treaty covers more space than just the physical spot where the ice is. Right. Right. But the Arctic, for example, you know. Most people would think of the Arctic Circle, which is that that kind of 
physical space on the planet where you have at least one day a year with 24 hour daylight in the summer or 24 hour daylight or darkness in the winter, or you could think of the Arctic ocean. But again, you know, these, these things that we define as Arctic and Antarctic, I mean, although they are physical places, it's purely arbitrary. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know, in some sense, you know, they're colonial. I mean, indigenous people lived in the Arctic for thousands and thousands of years and never thought of themselves as living in the Arctic. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's just not the case. On the other hand, in the modern world where we live in, where we have nation states, something like an Arctic, you know, which has a clear definition, um, well, has many definitions, but has different de- definitions that have geopolitical meanings, then um, they serve a purpose. Sometimes they are colonial, but sometimes they are actually, in theory, beneficial. So, for example, there are eight countries that that um, are comprise the Arctic Council plus indigenous representation of the people who live across the Arctic. So the Arctic Council is a group of, of, of nations that get together and try to create conditions to make the Arctic a safe peaceful and prosperous place. I mean, I think that's kind of their mission. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, it means that there's issues that relate to, you know, indigenous rights that need to be dealt with. There's issues about biodiversity, about climate change, you know, about, um, you know, other forms of social justice, about, you know, you know, economics, but also about safety. You know, I mean, if you have ships operating in the Arctic, you know, what happens when one of them has an accident? Well, there's all the Arctic countries agree to work together because of the complex environment that's there to make sure that we all take care of each other. So I think that that concept of peace, prosperity, you know, um, you know, those kind of things kind of drive it. But of course, then there's underpinnings to those things as well. And one of the difficulties then is the organization like the Arctic Council has to define the Arctic. There's many different definitions of the Arctic, but then we come to settle on an Arctic definition, for example, in Sweden, that includes two of the northernmost kind of provinces or counties or whatever it would be called, like a state, uh, Vesterbotten and Norrbotten, which is about a third of the country. And that is now officially kind of the Swedish Arctic, the European Arctic, and that is viewed by the Arctic Council as the Arctic. And so that means then, for example, when... uh, an organization, whether it be a research council or whether it be the European Union, the European Commission, put out, uh, for example, funding calls or to kind of deal with, for example, things like the green transition, you know, or to deal with climate change or to deal with social justice issues. They can use the definition of the Arctic as an arbitrary boundary to say this is where that work will take place. So I gave, I, I mentioned quite a few different things in there, but Maybe some of that helps to answer your question. No, that's very helpful. And of course, during the Cold War, Cold War, from the end of the Second World War to the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, there was a history of cooperation uh, of a certain sort across those barriers of the so-called Iron Curtain and the so-called free world amongst scientists as well as poets and musicians and so on, wasn't there? And now, needless to say, we're in another moment that's quite complicated in this, given that uh, Sweden, where you're located, is seeking to join NATO. 
And Russia is not very keen on countries that are members of NATO and members of NATO are not very keen on Russia. So it's a complex time all around in terms of collaboration and cooperation when it comes to a multitude of topics and places, not least the Arctic. Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that is quite difficult for many scientists to kind of reconcile is that, you know, of course, if you go to an international scientific conference and there's Russian scientists or Soviet scientists and there would have been American scientists, British, Swedish scientists, of course, it's possible that some of them were spies. But that generally wasn't a factor that, that limited the possibility of collaboration or information sharing. Yeah. I mean, there might have been uh, geopolitical, uh, you know, national interests that prohibited something like technology transfer or something like that. But by and large, it was an environment where people felt comfortable to discuss the science. And, you know, over drinks, you know, maybe people talked about politics, but that was behind closed doors. And that was between individuals and, you know, weren't necessarily reflecting, you know, a position about the state or a position from the state. And so I think that many scientists today don't really understand why this is different. I mean, there have been numerous wars since the creation of the Soviet Union. There's been numerous wars since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And at least from my perspective, many of those wars have been proxy wars between NATO and the Soviet Union or the U.S. and their allies in the Soviet Union or the contemporary Russia and, you know, the U.S. or whatever. And I think many of us find it very difficult to understand the logic that is put in front of us that Russia, by invading Ukraine, has, has, has violated international rules-based norms, so we can't work with them anymore. And of course, what they've done in Ukraine is completely unacceptable. It's completely horrendous. It's, it's terrible. And it doesn't get better every day. It gets worse in some sense. On the other hand, wasn't the invasion of Iraq by the United States and Britain under false pretenses of weapons of mass destruction? Wasn't that a violation of international rules-based norms? You know, overthrowing Gaddafi in Libya? You know, wasn't that some kind of international violation? I mean, if you can argue that those aren't violations, then I would argue then that we need to re redefine what are international rules-based norms. So I think, you know, that's the dilemma that we have when it comes to this issue, because how can you do science about the Arctic? And how can you understand our Earth's climate system without understanding what's happening in the Arctic? And how can you understand what's happening in the Arctic if you exclude 50% of the science? It doesn't work. Absolutely. This is a very, very, very serious problem. No doubt about it. And I do wish people would cast themselves back to the Cold War and the possibility of these collaborations. Because spies are everywhere. Uh, anyway. For sure. They're all through academia. I mean, the entire world, for example, of Asian studies in political science and history and anthropology during the Cold War in the United States was funded by the CIA. And they would 
decree which topics should be studied and they would have favored versus disfavored doctoral students and professors and all the rest of it. And those people would, like journalists working for the New York Times or the Washington Post, who were in those countries, would report back to the CIA local person. I mean, there's nothing strange about this. It's well documented and there's no need for conspiracy theories. It's documented by those who did it and those who saw it and those who didn't like it. In any event, uh, I do think this is an important question and one that I deeply appreciate your, your mentioning. I also appreciate your mentioning indigenous peoples, because, of course, one of the differences that is there between the Arctic and the Antarctic is that although they're you know, there are so many more residents of the Arctic than they are of the Antarctic and have been for a very long time, right? So it is more contested space in that sense, but it's also a space of a lot of indigenous knowledge. And I wonder if there's anything in indigenous cosmologies, observations, understandings that's relevant to the kind of work you're trying to do in terms of either... um, adaptive life or science communication? Well, I think that in the sense of those two places, I think, first of all, there are no indigenous humans to the Antarctica. There are penguins, there are other things that are indigenous there, but there are no people. The the reason why Antarctica may be a contested space is for different reasons than the Arctic. Now, the Arctic has had indigenous people living here across it, you know, in places that were probably ice free during the last ice age, you know, in places like Siberia and, uh, you know, in the Bering Strait regions and northern, possibly in northern uh, Alaska and Canada. And then, of course, indigenous peoples occupied this landscape from the moment that it became ice free. So this is this is a human landscape. And I think one of the things that, first of all, reflecting on kind of my past history as a scientist, you know, I was motivated to be outside because I was in scouting and I loved hiking and camping. And I was motivated to do the kind of things I do because I watched David Attenborough documentaries, <laughs> you know, where David Attenborough was the first person to ever see this event. But, you know, and, and I mean, it's it's certainly no um, harsh criticism for him. But I think in many cases, it would have been safe safer to say that he was the first kind of white Western person to witness many of these phenomena because these remote and often, um, you know, wilderness landscapes are essentially human landscapes. And, and often they, they have been even shaped by humans and their activities for thousands and thousands of years, maybe millennia. So uh, I think that that's the first important thing is that if I think about when I moved to Abisko in 2013, I kind of have been moving around, you know, primarily the Northern Hemisphere, but a little bit in the Southern Hemisphere to do field work for the better part of 30 years. And what I realized was that, you know, I could kind of learn and recognize the sounds and, and 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 identifying all the birds, you know, usually within a couple of years. I could learn to identify the majority of the plant species in about six years, okay? So you accumulate this knowledge because, because of your presence in those places. 
And, and you also find that there's these scientists like myself and others who often feel like the only way you can understand a place is by living there. You can't just come as a tourist for one week of field work per year or a month each year and, and truly understand that place. So then if we start to take some of those ideas and step back, how could we ignore the accumulated knowledge of people who've been living there for decades, centuries, or millennia? That seems absurd, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I think that one of the problems is that we off, we have tried to create a formalized sense of what science is. And that is in part so that we can compare and evaluate science that's done. You know, I have a hypothesis, I test it, I have evidence to support it. So my theory has been supported by evidence. And by creating those formalized structures, in essence, what we exclude is other forms of knowing, other ways of knowing. And that may be useful in certain contexts. You know, I mean, if you're trying to, for example, understand, you know, kind of quantum mechanics, I guess that's probably a fairly decent approach to doing things. But if you're trying to understand the dynamics of ecosystems, I would today have a hard time imagining not wanting to collaborate with the people who have continuous knowledge of those ecosystems because one of the fundamental properties of ecosystems, and, and I guess almost every system that exists in our entire universe, is that change is a fundamental part of it. And that change is, is, is sometimes predictable, but sometimes it's random. And so it means that you often need very, very long time series to distinguish what's a trend versus a random event. And then to contextualize that, to understand, you know, is this a drought or is this actually mean this part of the planet is becoming a desert? But in order to do that, you need these kind of long time series of data, if you will. But let's just call it information. Mm -hmm. And so who are the keepers of that? We, you know, one of the things that I love is that we have this kind of story that we've told ourselves from kids in the West. That's this game where you get in a circle, like say 20 friends, and you whisper something in one person's ear. And by the time it gets back to you, it's completely different. And I mean, we've all experienced that. It's true, isn't it? On the other hand, scientists have started to sit down and listen to traditional ecological knowledge of indigenous people in Australia, in Canada, probably in Sweden, maybe not so much yet because this is still an area we're not very good at in Sweden. And we've actually found that their stories that get told because they have a very specific, because they don't, they don't traditionally have a written history, they have an oral history. So they have a way of making sure that stories that capture important events are perpetuated over time because it could mean the difference between survival. It could mean the difference between having a meal and not having a meal. It could be the difference between finding an important place that spiritually is important or not. And so 
we are just starting to grapple with the fact that there are other ways of capturing information, knowledge, and data that go back thousands and even tens of thousands of years as we're starting to learn, for, for example, from the indigenous peoples of Australia that tell us about how the climate has changed. And that to me suggests that we have to have a fundamental rethink about how we engage with indigenous people and how we value their livelihoods. I think one of the things that, that, that deeply concerns me right now in Europe, we have this kind of green deal and we're going through this green transition period. And because we've created, and scientists are the ones who've driven this narrative, we've created this narrative that burning fossil fuels has been bad. There's many reasons why it's bad. That it's driving massive climate change, rapid climate change, and that if we don't address it immediately, we are all screwed. You know, that there will be some kind of climate apocalypse and, you know, we will have to, you know, live out the movie, The Road, in the future in our local communities and our regions. And although the rate of change when it comes to climate change is important because then that determines how resilient, meaning how well we can adapt to future conditions. So reducing the rate of change is fundamental versus accelerating the rate of change, which it seems to be often what we, we can see what's happening right now. I mean, we're still burning more coal than we've ever burned. We're just, the rate of that increase in coal is less. So, I mean, certain countries in the, like the UK, I mean, there are times where they're not burning any coal at all, or Germany, they're not burning any coal to produce energy. But still, in terms of energy demand, there are places in the world where we're still adding coal capacity. So when we start thinking about this urgency to tackle climate change, and I'm not for a moment pretending that that's not urgent, what we've done is because the evidence of climate change comes from the measurements of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and then the, uh, the consequences of that, which are the rising temperatures in the ocean or the acidification of the ocean, or the rising air temperatures or the extreme weather events, because we measure those things and we see that this is problematic, we see, okay, we've got to reduce carbon dioxide. That is absolutely true. That, that, we, that is not to be contested. But how do we do that? Well, this comes back to the same te technotopian thinking of the past. What we need to do is we simply need to create green energy and implement that green energy as quickly as possible. We need to, uh, where not possible, we need to create carbon credits and you know carbon offsetting and all these other things. And nobody's actually looking at what the consequences of, say, for example, simply replacing diesel and benzene cars with electric cars. Nobody's asking, what is the consequence of that? Because the fundamental problem that I am reconciling with right now in terms of climate change communication is that carbon dioxide and the climate change that we're measuring is a second order problem. It's caused by something else. And then we could say it's by burning fossil fuels, but yes, 
where does the fossil fuels come from? It comes from underground, for example. And so actually, ultimately, it's, it comes from digging up the ground and transforming a forest or a lake or the ocean bottom or a grassland into a source of fossil fuel production. And in the process of doing that, we build all this infrastructure that transforms that land, what then means that we have reduced the possibilities of that land um, performing its traditional ecosystem functions, storing carbon underground, for example, in the soil, um, you know, storing, you know, carbon as sediment at the bottom of the ocean or the bottom of lakes, you know, cleaning the air, re you know, removing, you know, uh, carbon dioxide and producing oxygen, you know, all of those things that are super important. We then have taken a piece of landscape that formerly did that, and we've turned it into something that is sterile, that doesn't support biodiversity, that often doesn't support thriving human communities, that doesn't support indigenous livelihoods, that doesn't support those primary ecosystem functions that are absolutely relevant to us today. And so in the thinking of that transformation, what's important, if we're going to go ahead and take the, do this green transition, right now, European countries, corporations around the world are focused on the Arctic, where we have people that have been living for thousands of years making traditional livelihoods and seeing that as simply a place to exploit for renewable energy, to exploit for rare earth minerals, for, to exploit for resources. So if we take this so-called wilderness, it's really a human landscape where indigenous people have been living for thousands of years, making their traditional livelihoods, whether it be reindeer herding or whether it be seal and walrus hunting, you know, whether it be uh, hunter, other types of gathering traditions, whatever it might be, and then we transform that landscape as rapidly as possible to, 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 to satisfy the demands for energy, you know, in Stockholm and in Berlin and in Beijing and in New York and in Chicago, we may actually wind up locking in the types of technologies that we might reflect in 30 or 50 years were bad substitutions. And, and right we now want... we're seeing a, a flood of money and enterprise and governmental commitment in northern Sweden in search of the rare earth minerals that will help to substitute for the West's dependence on China for many natural resources relevant to computing technology, right? And just yes. like the 19th century ball bearing world, right? Yeah. this is a, a new wealth source for Sweden and, of course, it comes at tremendous cost when it comes to the impact on the natural world. Well, this is, this is the revelation I had a few years ago. And, and, and let me just say that I can make, take no credit for the ideas that I'm sharing with you. These are all just things that have come together through my experiences with my research friends, you know, my, my, uh, you know the, the people that I find interesting, you know, or, you know, whether it be through listening to podcasts, reading books, reading magazines, you know, hanging out with my indigenous friends and eating reindeer meat, you know, with them, you know, sitting around the dinner table and having interesting conversations. So, so, you know, maybe what I do is 
I kind of package these ideas to create a narrative for you right now. And I can take no credit for the originality of any of those individual ideas. But, but what I came to realize a few years ago is that in a warming planet where right now we're mostly investing in the idea that there will be technologies to protect ourselves from the changes that we are creating, which is really a fantasy. I mean, carbon capture. We will never be able to capture as much carbon as we're putting out on an annual basis and what we've already put in the atmosphere since 1990 or since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We'll never be able to capture that within in any reasonable cost. So either everybody in society will agree to be taxed in some way to pay for all of our past misdeeds, which would be you know trillions and trillions to take carbon out of the atmosphere that what are you going to do? You know, like make bubble machines so we can have sparkling water in our kitchen. I mean, right now, you know, without, with, with the exception of some experimental things, you know, you're, you're not, you're not taking the carbon out of the atmosphere with these giant fan machines in Iceland. And then out of the other end of the tailpipe comes an iPhone or comes a hammer or comes, uh, you know, a West African dinner at my London restaurant that just got a Michelin star. That's not how it works, right? So what's gonna, what happens with that carbon when you take it out? Well, you can put it underground, of course, but again, you haven't made a product with it. So where is the economics of carbon capture and sequestration? I mean, right now, the only economics of carbon capture is to capture carbon from, for example, North, North Sea, oil drilling platforms, and then using that carbon to pump it back into the wells to create more pressure to force more oil and gas out of the ground. So that's not really a good, you know, that's not really benefiting anybody. But my point is that, that we're stuck on these technological solutions. And often these technological solutions are just replacements. So somehow, if we just simply, everybody drives electric cars, all of the energy in our house to drive all the appliances that we have and all the shit that we don't need that we consume to make ourselves happy. All that electricity is green coming from wind and solar. You know, we have to mine and mine and mine and build this technology. Nobody ever asks, what's the real cost of those things? Mm -hmm. and, and the thing is, you know, in Sweden, we live in a democracy. So that means that because the Sami indigenous people represent a very small number of people in the north of Sweden, if the majority of people in Sweden decide, hey, you know, what we want to do is we want to mine that land. We value the, 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 the economic output of that land from mining rather than the small amount of reindeer meat that's generated commercially from a traditional livelihood. We're a democracy because the Sami don't have at this point any special a priori right to that land that's recognized by the state that's supported by legislation and court rulings, there's no way to stop the mining. There's yeah. no way to stop the habitat fragmentation to build 100,000, 500,000 wind turbines that will be needed to create the hydrogen to produce the green steel in Sweden. So I'm very much interested in thinking about how can we create social simulations for different outcomes in terms of a green transition? Could we have a green transition where the outcome is actually social justice versus one that is simply about the economics and the short-term national interests of a handful of people. And what well, would that yeah, look like? I've, got, 
I've got two more questions for you. Yeah. And then I'd like to throw it over to you to add to or subtract from anything we've said. Does that sound okay? Yes. So my first question is this. Before we started recording, you told me that since our last conversation, you'd gone through a real transformation in terms of your thinking about science communication. Could you tell us about where you were and where you are now on that thorny topic? Well, let me just say in terms of science communication, I'm I'm only talking about uh, climate science. Mm-hmm. Although obviously, you know, you could see that is analogous to kind of the problems we had with vaccines during COVID, you know, during the pandemic, et cetera. And, you know, or, you know, kind of in the past, maybe with tobacco and things like that. But I really saw that climate change was this thing we had to tackle. And so there needed to be a process of figuring out how do we create a sense of urgency? How do we get people to understand risk? Because ultimately what I realized is that when you look at IPCC reports, there's thousands and thousands of pages of synthesized scientific evidence. Thousands of data visualizations to explain the problem. And yet at the same time, we're not really pushing the needle anywhere. All we're simply doing is potentially uh, creating a situation where we, you know, all use bamboo toothbrushes and drive electric cars and sing Kumbaya and say problem solved. And, and so with that problem and thinking about that, I was thinking about, for example, you know, why is it that whenever we try to visualize how, you know, the temperature has changed over the last century or climate change, we use averages. So the average surface temperature now is, you know, arguably about 1.5 degrees warmer than the beginning of the industrial revolution. And then everybody's like, okay, 1.5 degrees, that doesn't sound like much. I experience more than a couple degrees of temperature change during the day. So 1.5, why is that important? And of course it is important, but using averages as a way of communicating to me doesn't capture the risk that's embodied with every 10th of a degree temperature change. Because ask yourself, I mean, when was the last time you went to the grocery store or you went to a restaurant or you were trying to negotiate with your children to get a particular outcome and used averages. We don't do that. I mean, nobody goes to, goes to Ikea and then looks at the 15 different you know, light, light fixtures on the shelf there and then takes the average price and then says, you know what? I'm gonna go one, one kroner or euro higher or one kroner or euro lower in terms of which one I choose simply because I want the one that I think is better in quality or I want the one that's a better price. I mean, that's not how we function. You know, you go and you look at the one that you think is the prettiest or you read the energy efficiency statistics and go, oh, this one is a is an F, not a G. I'm going to buy the F instead of the G because that's better, even though you don't even know what that means. So I think that, you know, we we have not figured out how to communicate science in terms of creating a real evidence-based approach to policy making, to corporate decisions that res- that affect their profits and shareholder outcomes, we haven't we haven't done that. There are probably some areas that that that, that does exist, but when it comes to climate change, protecting biodiversity, protecting human rights, I mean, I just don't see it. You know, convince me that I'm wrong. 
But where the transformation has come is not in that. That was just part of that kind of linear road, you know, of giving hundreds of climate change talks over the year and understand trying to understand why I made no difference at all. Mm-hmm. You know, despite the fact that people would come up to me and say, oh, you gave a great talk about climate change. It was the best one I, I ever heard. And then I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? Because like in two hours, you're going to be with your friends, having a beer, watching Netflix. It doesn't really feel like a crisis, does it? But my real transformation has come with recognizing that climate change, driven by, for example, CO2 production or other greenhouse gas production, is a second order effect. That if we actually want to create a sustainable and just world, we actually have to think about how we use land. Because the land is what, and the ocean, and the lakes and the rivers, but we have how we use the physical space on this planet because ultimately mm-hmm. that is what creates the opportunities for life. And if we just simply say, well, here's a big part of the planet and we screwed it up through the fossil fuel revolution. Now there's the green revolution. We're going to go to the new part of the planet that has been less impacted. What is going to be the outcome? That is, that's my revelation. And of course, maybe that doesn't sound like a revelation to most, but I mean, I think that's absolutely real. So if you think about, if you're a property developer, should you be able to develop property in a, say, regular, you know, say, a, 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 an apparently functioning forest on the edge of town? Should you be able to clear that to build 500 apartments or to build a factory or to build a school? Or should you have to look internally within the physical footprint of that city or municipality to a place that's maybe being disused or underutilized? Should you be encouraged through zoning regulations to shift inward? Could the market actually give you carbon credits for using a building that's already been built, that's already been carbon taken from somewhere else to build it, instead of giving you carbon credits for clearing a forest, building an apartment block, and then planting trees somewhere else on the planet? that are eucalyptus that aren't even native to that place. Beautifully put, sir. And my, my last question before handing over to you, Professor Keith, is I'm a new doctoral student. I'm concerned about climate change. I've got a background in the humanities or the soft, inverted commas, social sciences. I come to you and say... I want to do my PhD and I wanted to focus on these questions of climate change. How is that person, how are you going to help that person learn the science, which may be something that's quite foreign to them? Well, I would say that, first of all, there's not a lot of evidence that all of the science that we've been doing to date, to understand the impacts of climate change is important. Now, that's a a pretty radical thing to say. But I would argue that if we're using taxpayers' money to go out there to address climate change and do research about it, but then actually it's not having an impact on policymakers and corporations in their decision-making, the science may be interesting. And it may have the potential of being important, but clearly it's not. So where do we go from there? 
Well, I think the social sciences and the humanities potentially have a great role in helping us understand the psychology of how human beings make decisions, the psychology about how we evaluate risk. I would say that it's maybe less about the person from social sciences and humanities to understand all the nuance of the climate change science per se. It's more about them helping the climate scientists understand the human ecosystems and, and the human uh, constructed places where we negotiate these things, whether they're political, whether they're corporate, economic, whether social, so that we can start reframing not just how we communicate, but maybe even the type of data we collect and how we do the science. And that brings us back to traditional ecological knowledge. It may be that scientists, climate scientists, ecologists, evolutionary ecologists, biogeochemists, glaciologists, by collaborating with indigenous communities and saying, hey, you know, we are concerned about this problem. And sitting down at the table with these communities and then co-creating new research questions, maybe those research questions will be more relevant and will be more easy for society to act on. And it's not, of course, just indigenous communities. It's all of our communities. I mean, if we sit down in the community in Stockholm or in Madrid with the people there and understand what are the needs of their lives on a daily basis, what is the apparently to them arbitrary decision to cut pesticide use by 50 percent mm -hmm. to demand that people can no longer drive cars in their cities to demand that people who rely on cars because they don't have access to public transportation somehow magically start riding a bike how can that understanding shape the types of research questions we ask in the future and then, because that would shape the research questions, it would mean that that research would be more interdisciplinary, meaning, say, political scientists or historians working with climate scientists or environmental scientists. And it could mean doing transdisciplinary research, which extends interdisciplinary research to the communities where you work with the municipalities, where you work with service organizations, work with community groups where you work with indigenous groups, where you work with companies to develop new research questions and to solve those problems. That is the future of science, in my opinion. And I think wonderful to talk about this collaborative spirit, because although science is highly competitive, one of the consequences of bench science and other norms is that at least there is always collaboration. Uh, you know, you have a very extensive and, and a very distinguished publication record, uh, dozens if not hundreds of articles, and most of them are written with three or four other authors, and that's not yeah. unusual uh, in science, whereas for people, particularly in the humanities and in many areas of the social sciences, that's not the norm, and I do think there's something there about bringing together people's different strengths and yeah. weaknesses 
for open discussion is incredibly powerful. Uh, so, Prof Larson, to conclude, just want to, as I said, hand over to you for a moment to see whether there are things that you think we need to know that we haven't already learned from you today. Well, I would say that, first of all, um, one of the fundamental misperceptions that scientists and universities have them about themselves is that they are knowledge providers. We are information providers. Knowledge is a process. It's a, it's a philosophical construct, right? It's a knowledge is a process of assimilating information to form ideas and opinions, you know, that, that, that is informed by information. And so I would like to recognize that if we want to shape how the world works, interprets, and experiences itself, then we have to step out of the idea that we are creating knowledge, but we are contributing to the knowledge landscape. That it's individuals, it's communities, it's groups of people that create knowledge based on their lived experiences. And sometimes that lived experience includes encountering data, encounters you know, scientific papers or ideas that come from science. So I think that's a very important point to, uh, to bring up because that also means that there's just different ways of knowing and acknowledging that there are you know, traditional knowledge systems that come from indigenous people or local people who've been living in places for hundreds of thousands of years that, you know, that have meaningful contributions. And then one of the other things that I thought was very interesting recently, which meaning last May, is I was at this uh, conference uh, with a bunch of Arctic institutions talking about how we collaborate and all that. And it was kind of right after this whole storm of chat GTP just started. And I, there was all of these, you know, academics and learned leaders uh, complaining about artificial intelligence and and uh, ChatGPT and some of the other things. And I was just sitting there thinking, this is crazy. How can it be that we are lamenting about the fact that there's all these biases inherent in the algorithms and in the, um, you know, the AI-driven tools that are being created, the platforms that are being created with the technologies that are being created? How can we lament about the lack of ethics or the lack of social concern or recognizing the potential problems that will be created by those things? How can we be complaining about those things without acknowledging the fact that the people that are creating those people were educated in our institutions? The computer scientists that are going out there and creating you know, logarithms are sitting in our computing science programs and not being forced to study history and philosophy and ethics. So if we really want to solve many of the problems, whether it be climate change or some of the issues related around technology and AI, wouldn't one place to start be making sure that from the very primary level of education all the way through the formalized, say, doctoral processes and postdoctoral processes, that science is truly interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary. So do you get these different perspectives? How many times do you hear not just David Attenborough saying, this is the first time that anybody's documented this phenomena, 
but a scientist saying, oh, we've invented this technology or my idea is original. And then if you meet a historian, you find out, no, people have been talking about that for decades or even over 100 years. It's just that you formalized it in your particular way. So, I mean, those are just a couple of things that I maybe we can end with unless you have some other ideas that you want to no, that, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Prof. Larson. Um, it's always great learning from you and speaking with you. And I, I deeply appreciated this opportunity to record today. It's my pleasure. And I would say that, I mean, although this is, I mean, it's a bit of a dialogue between us because you have a few questions. It's mostly me sharing my ideas. I would say, though, that honestly, if you want to sit down and think about how you bring about change. It can't be a one-way conversation. <laughs> Maybe this conversation can be, you know, something that you can critique, be critical of around the dinner table, around the uh, uh, faculty table, or, you know, on the bus when you're sitting next to a friend, and that's what you should do. You should always be sitting around the table thinking about who's not there, what voice isn't being heard, what could I possibly learn from somebody else that would change my way of thinking? Because I, I think what I've learned from having these kind of conversations with you is our conversations have extended way beyond just this, um, this uh, uh, recording. But what I really enjoy is learning that I'm wrong about something, that my opinion is just that, and that my opinion at any moment in time simply reflects my life experience at that moment. Hopefully, I've done a good job at incorporating evidence into that opinion. But if new evidence comes along, what a pleasure to know that I have learned something new and that I was wrong and that I have learned something from somebody else. That is amazing. And if we can all start to move ourselves a little bit in that direction and learn from the people who already think that way in practice, then I think that you know we don't have to worry about the climate apocalypse. Beautifully put. Thanks again, Keith.